Hello, and welcome to another episode. I am Jason, the creator of The Grey Rooms. We are excited to deliver this gift for you to enjoy this holiday season, and we would also like to take the time to thank those who support us in our creation of this and every episode. Without them, we would not be able to do what we are able to do now. So, with great pleasure, I introduce these patrons who make this all possible. Amy Nikolai, Arthur Unk, Ashley Enstrom, Austin Furman, Brooks Bigley, C.L. Bishop, Elizabeth Dowell, Isabel Diedrix, Jason Porras, Jeremy Schaefer, Kathleen Clyde, Michael Velez, and Patrick Stewart. Thank you again for your support, and if you would like to become a patron, feel free to go to patreon.com forward slash to gray rooms and check out the tiers. I guarantee we have one for you. But now, on with the episode. You awake. The elevator is small and cramped. There is a strange old man. He's mumbling. You hear a ding, and he forces you out. You're lost. You have no memory of this place. How did you get here? Where are you? It doesn't matter. Because now, you belong to the Grey Rooms. Season 2, Episode 3 My mind is a melting pot of stress and worry that does not allow for luxuries such as relaxation. <laughs> I, I think I need an ambulance. My husband won't wake up. There's someone lying next to my wife. can't wake up. I've tried, but I think I'm in a coma or something. I, I don't know. You snooze, you lose. Are you ignoring me, John? Wake, Wake up! I scream in my ear. Doctors are trying to bring me back. But it's too late. And I think they know it too. I'm truly sorry about your circumstance. Perhaps I'll fix you. Uh, uh, bring you back. I don't really want to come back. I can hardly get air as I open my eyes and I know the two hands around my neck belong to Luke. I'm alone. More alone than I've ever been, and more alone than anyone should ever be. I'm a spectator once again, but even more so now. The thought is unbearable. I can't be an audience in my own life. Life. 
I am alone. Oh, you're back. Wonderful, wonderful. Up alone, you say? Oh, I guess you forgot about poor old Tom. Uh, no, it, it's something the man said in the end. It... Uh, forget it. How are you today, Todd? Me? You're the only other person in this elevator, man. Yeah, you. Well, people don't really ask me that. Uh, I, uh, well, to be honest, I'm alone too. I don't really have any friends in this shitty place. It's pretty shitty, isn't it? <laughs> it sure is. How did you get here? Is that an okay thing to ask? You want to know? Well, I, I don't really know. As far as I know, I've always been here. In this hotel? Oh, that, no. But here. It's hard to explain. I've always been associated with, with, with the people you know. Like my parents? Well, no, not them. But probably everybody else. Look, look, I probably shouldn't talk about it. And honestly, it's time for you to go anyway. Nice talk, though. Thank you. Really. You're welcome, Todd. You know, if you ever need to get anything off your... Off my elevator? Yes, yeah, yeah, yes, you, you should do it then. I have to go back up. That old jerk. Every single time. What is his problem anyway? Well, I'll figure it out. It sounds like he's just as alone as I am around here. Bob isn't at his desk. He must have had to go take care of something. I could ring the bell, but... Eh, I don't want to talk to him. Could just go exploring. Like, oh my god, Samantha. Separating. That's like... Such a great idea! Let's go and do it! Right? Okay, so where to go? We've seen the fountain, we've seen the front desk, the elevator... Samantha, how about we go to the bar over there? Look! Opposite the front desk? Oh, I could totally go for like a mojito right about now. Ew, I'd rather just get a nice tea. Like, whatever! You take away all the fun. Yep. Totally sounds like me. Why does this place even have a bar anyway? Hello there. How can I help you? Hi. <laughs> uh, I didn't know anyone else worked here. You know, other than Bob and Todd. Yeah, those guys. And Jake. Don't forget him. Jake? 
Who's that? Me. I, uh, guess. <laughs> so you want something? I have all kinds of beers and... I'll just have an iced tea. Thanks. You, uh, don't want that mojito, then? You heard that. Great. Yeah. I thought it was a pretty accurate depiction. I'll get your iced tea. One sec. So, you staying here long? I don't know. I have to go through these rooms and they lead to someone dying and... I'm kind of... involved, too. It's really weird. And I don't really like it. Sounds like you're going crazy. Here's your tea. Right? But I guess I'm not. Thanks. Do you have anything like that happening? Uh... No. I mean, I go to work and open that door, and then I open the door to the bar. But I don't really die or anything like that. Nobody usually comes in here, though. It's usually just me. I kinda started drinking on the job because, well, it's pretty boring. So, you just stand behind the bar? That's ridiculous. What the hell is going on here? I mean, this place. They told me that I am basically going to die. Every day. But as someone else in another room. And you have to stay in one room all the time? Alone. Alone? Yeah. That's really sad. Yeah. I keep feeling like I'm looking for something. I don't really feel alone when I'm doing that. But I forgot what I was looking for. Huh. Probably a new job, you know. <laughs> You'd think. But I don't know. It bugs me. Bad. I think it was important. Well, good luck on your quest, Jake. I'm going to go see if my friend Bob is back. He's probably as grumpy as usual. I don't want him saying I didn't show up and pick some new room for my death without me. Yep. I'll see you around. Uh, what did you say your name was? I don't think I asked. Sam. See you around, Jake. Hi, Bob. What's wrong with you? Well, it's pretty boring when you're not around, you know. You called me a horrible person. You started it. You also kept going on and on about how I was going to die. That's pretty rude, you know. So, how goes the whole killing business anyway? Did you kill anyone else before coming back to me? I... beg your pardon. <gasps> oh, you did. Anybody I know? Stop. Whatever you think you're doing, don't. This place exists for one thing only. Your demise. I thought you said one room led to salvation, though. Bob. 
I think I just caught you in a lie. Listen to me. I have been honest with you since the beginning. But you keep exercising your weasel ways, just like he did. It's sickening. Who's he? A person who is dead, just like you. I understand that you can't just come here, pick a room, and die. I understand you have questions, and you are bound to get upset. But if you keep pushing me, Samantha, I will not put up with it. What are you talking about? Bob, I'm just trying to have a conversation. You're always so damn angry. Okay, this is awkward. Uh, yeah. I'm not used to having a physical form. Wait, what? I didn't let him see me. He had to talk to an empty room. It was better. This, it's disgusting. Your suit's nice. Thank you. <clears throat> I feel like there is a but to come after that. Well, it's your face. I mean, I know that sounds mean. I don't mean it, but it's so... I don't know how to describe it. Um, oh, generic. Like, it has all the things a face has. Eyes, nose, mouth, ears. But it doesn't look real. It doesn't look real. Like a creepypasta or the first Toy Story movie. I don't know, um, a mannequin. It just doesn't look right. Was this supposed to make me feel better? Uh, I guess I shouldn't have said anything. I'm sorry, Bob. I was really trying to help. You did. I don't want to look like you or your friends. Is it terrifying? Uh, I mean, kind of. <laughs> I'm an artist, though. I've seen a lot of weird faces. Probably painted them, too. Thank you, Samantha. That means a lot. I'm afraid our time is up, however, and it's time to choose a room. I'm starving. You have anything dealing with food? No. I have one involving a boy who is trying to free his mother from a giant blob. And I have one involving a woman going on a ship. I mean, if you kept the blob part a surprise, it probably would have sold me. I'll go with the woman on a ship. I did probably spoil that one. Sorry. All right. Well, that means you chose room 1500. It's called Ice Cold Moon. Huh. Sounds like a beer. If you say so, can you please sign your name? Thank you. Have a nice stay. So, is Bob a demon? An alien, maybe? I should have realized his face just looks off. I have a bad feeling, though. 
There's got to be an end to all this. And what's that going to do to me? Hi, Todd. Oh, hello, miss. Ready to go up? Yep. Picked a room called Ice Cold Moon. Doesn't that sound like a beer? Oh, sure does, miss. Oh, you wouldn't have any on you, would you? Todd, do you think it would be wise to run this elevator while drunk? No, miss. But you should remember, I wouldn't mind a beer nonetheless. My darling and I were madly in love. Our courtship was the stuff of fairy tales. Our love spanned the stars. He made me smile every time his dimples puckered on either side of his moustache. I could swim forever in the rich, dark, velvet chocolate of his eyes, even when he tried to kill me. He was a proper man of London, and I was a simple girl from the Cotswolds. He had pedigree. I did not. I was a farm girl, and he was a banker. I often joked that he loved money more than me, and he'd reply with those dimples, I surely won't deny it. And then wink. His love of both me and the art of investment brought us to a small town outside of Cherbourg on the French coast. He brought me a small farm within sight of a lighthouse. It was heavenly. One day I'll have enough to buy you the entire moon, he said. On warm summer nights, we sat on a bench by the coast, gazing up dreamily at the moon over distant London the sudden death of a stranger far away changed everything. Of course, I turned to my husband to explain things to me about how an uncle I never knew amassed such a fortune in the neon lamp business. It really was an insane amount of inheritance that included land and a portion of my uncle's business. According to uncle's lawyer, he never had children of his own and was enamored with his sister's lovely daughter. I remember meeting an American when I was a little girl, but I had no idea he thought of me as the daughter he never had. The realization came quickly. I am now, quite suddenly, richer than my husband. That's when my fairy tale life abruptly became grim. husband spent his evenings at the pub, only to stagger home piss-drunk and reeking of cigar smoke. He became aloof, dark, and it worried me dreadfully. We were just shy of a month before making the trip to America, giving the lawyer and partners overseas time to get uncle's affairs in order. My husband warned me that one of the partners would undoubtedly contest the will, suing for sole ownership of the business, 
because apparently it was ghastly to think of a woman having a hand in it. So my husband booked us a second-class cabin on a steamer out of Cherbourg that would take us to New York. First class was booked, otherwise I'm sure he would have paid for a luxury suite. Our cabin was cramped and smelled of paint, and my beloved didn't care for the double berths. We ended up leaving our luggage on the top berth while we both snuggled in the single below it. I busied myself with walks around the second-class promenade during the day and needlepoint in our cabin at night. I rarely saw my husband, but I understood that men had to enjoy their cigars and talk of politics. And why should he break his nightly tradition of intoxication? Then came our last night aboard ship. He barged into the cabin, waking me with a start. <gasps> Squinting through the light from the corridor that blazed in upon me, I snatched up the timepiece next to the basin. Good heavens, darling, it's nearly midnight. He reeked of bourbon, and his tie was undone. Where have you been off to? I exclaimed, as if that was the first time I'd ever seen him so legless. My flower. He slurred. Come with me for a stroll on the promenade. Then he added, Please. With a sloppy, flourishing bow. I climbed out of the bunk and wrapped a blanket around my shoulders. But darling, it's late and... No buts. I want to see you against the moon in that dress you've yet to wear, the one from Paris. I have been a cad and an oaf and... I wish to pour my heart out to you by moonlight. Oh my. Intoxicated or not, it was always delightful to see this side of my husband. His eyes practically burned. His gaze was dark, but filled with warmth and desire. I had no idea at the time. It was the lustful look of greed. Why don't we stay here on the chaise, I offered, feeling myself warm to his closeness. A walk first, he prompted after kissing my hand. I'll await you in the hall. Get dressed. We stepped out onto the second-class promenade and I was instantly struck by the smell of clean, icy air. It's so cold, I protested, trying to bow my way back inside. Nonsense, he said. Here, take my jacket. I want you to see the moonlight on the ocean with me. Remember how I used to say I would buy you the moon? Well, yes, but... Then come, please, indulge me, and then we'll go back and warm each other in bed. His eyes narrowed. The insistence in his voice was dark as the cold night. All right, I blushed, acquiescing, but only for a moment. Of course. He wrapped his dinner jacket around my shoulders and walked me to the starboard side. I could hear the surge of water alongside the ship, and looking below I saw the white foam of the Black Sea peeling out from the hull in wicked torrents. It was dark, though the sky shone with the brilliance of a million tiny diamonds. Darling, there's no moon. Let's... But before I could protest further, he was on me. His surprisingly warm hands went to my throat, 
and pressed, bending me backward over the railing. It was fortunate that I thought to reach out to his own throat and grip him by the collar to steady myself. Had I reached instead to try to pull his strong hands from my neck, I would have toppled into the icy water below. He spat in my face. It's not fair! Those burning eyes of desire now showed a different kind of lust in the yellow light of the promenade. It wasn't a lure or love. It was greed that fueled my husband now. Greed for what lay ahead in New York. I could only claw into his collar, holding on for dear life. I drew in freezing air to scream, but his thumbs dug into my throat. Veins bulged at his temples as he pushed me backwards. I felt my weight starting to shift. I was going over. The final gaze I gave him was filled with raw panic, and my eyes begged the question, why? Why is the man I love with all my heart doing this? He wavered. My struggling bought enough time that his resolve had been shaken. I saw regret and fear suddenly appear in his gaze, trying to peer through the fog of too much drink. His brows arched up and he loosened his grasp on my neck. Darling, I... He eased back, even pulling me away from the rail. I coughed his name plaintively, rubbing my throat, but I wasn't smart enough to move away from the railing behind me. He said, I love you. And I do so want to give you the moon, but business is no place for women. <laughs> we could talk to the lawyer. I'll give it all to you. I already spoke with the man. The will is ironclad, I'm afraid. You... you spoke with him? About my inheritance. I saw his shoulders square, the alcohol dark in his eyes again, the misting breath from his nose and mouth pouring out like flames from an angry dragon. Your inheritance? He growled sourly. I work hard for my money, and I've always won. He was growing furious now, his momentary doubt pushed away like the black waters forced aside by the ship. Darling, please... I cried, tears burned my eyes and froze to my cheeks. This was the moment, I thought, that I lost my husband. Oh God, don't faint. I screamed inside my mind. I shook the webs from my head just as he charged toward me at full sprint, eager to do this horrible thing before his resolve was split by our love once more. No! I shouted and spun to the side. And in that moment, I swear, I heard and felt my fear becoming manifest. The deck seemed to hum and vibrate under my feet, and a thunder rolled up from the black water. And then, the night took my husband. The alcohol robbed him of the line between his brain and his limbs. After I spun to the side, he dove forward, into the railing and nearly over it. The ship shuddered under our feet as his arms swung out wildly. 
My mind had even less time to paint the picture of the man I used to know as I watched him perish in front of me. There was only a brief second that passed as he toppled forward, his arm flailing only to find purchase on a swiftly moving wall of slippery blue glass. The dark wall slid by, bending him at an impossible angle as it scraped along the side of the ship. I screamed. The dark, jagged shelf of ice pinned him, then pulled him over the side. There was such a roar of waves, amplified by the closeness of the ice wall, and a horrendous scraping of metal as the thunder continued rolling under my feet. And then, he was gone. I screamed again and ran to the railing. The water was in a terrible state, churning black, blue and white in the wake of the iceberg drifting away behind us. My husband was gone, vanished into the frozen night. I screamed his name, my shrill voice lost over the infinity of the cold black horizon. Part of me hoped I'd see him hanging by an open portal, or even waving from the dark berg that was already swallowed by the black, untouched by the ship's lights. No! I dropped to my knees at the promenade's railing and wept into my hands. I didn't cry for the loss of the man who would have thrown me to the ice, now freezing in that watery hell, if he's not dead already. I cried for the man who kissed me on our wedding day. The man who loved me when I felt I could not please him as he deserved. The man whose greed blackened his heart in one final unexpected surge. I don't know how long I cried, but I soon felt like the cold hands of night were wrapping around me, pulling me into unconsciousness as the volume of the night fell. But I wasn't drifting off. The ship was stopping. I wiped my eyes with the heels of my palms and stood up. I picked up my husband's jacket from where it had fallen to the deck and held it to my face. I inhaled his cologne, cigar smoke, and of course, his bourbon. I wept some more. I quickly moved inside and was thankful for the relative heat of the second-class indoor promenade. A steward was rushing my way. When he saw my state, he gave me a snarling frown. Oi, what are you doing out here? I deflected with a question of my own. Have we stopped? What's happened? My reckon is we thrown a propeller blade, miss. It happens. Will we be delayed getting to New York? He hurried on the way he was going, but called over his shoulder. I tell you this, that time we made up after that delay in Southampton, we're gonna lose it again. I felt like I'd been electrocuted. The ship was parking on my husband's watery grave. 
forcing me to think about what I'd done, what, what he'd attempted to do. I made my way to our cabin and covered myself in the blanket. The warmth and closeness of the room did nothing to warm my insides. I looked at the small shelf above the basin and saw his comb and tin of pomade. <laughs> I curled into a ball of satin and wool and cried. I screamed into the downy pillow, his rumpled jacket, and wondered what I'd do when I got to New York alone. My mind played games, flashing images of his final moments, the black, icy death that clawed him off the ship, contrasting with memories of our visits to Paris, running along the beach, through the fields. My tears didn't stop until a sharp rap sounded on my door. <gasps> his impossible voice came through. Wally. I practically screamed his name as I rolled to my feet, the blanket still around me, and scrambled to the door. I expected to see him dripping with freezing seawater, shivering and begging my forgiveness. But it was only a boy, a steward who smelled of cigarettes. Captain says all ladies up on deck with lifebelts on. Why? Then I added quickly, I, I thought we had just broke a propeller. What? No! We struck a berg, lady. We're sinking. Sinking? I said as the boy turned and rushed to the next door, pounding on it and shouting. I stepped back inside and closed the cabin door. Looking around for a sign of anything that would prove to me this was all some kind of nightmare. The ship didn't feel like it was sinking. Shouldn't it be tipping over or, or filling with water? I went back to the door and saw a grumpy, sleepy old couple heading in my direction toward the stairs that would take them to the second-class promenade. Beg pardon, is it true? We're sinking. The man merely shot me an annoyed glare, but the old woman stopped long enough to pat the bulky white life belt that made her look like a stack of canvas boxes. She said, Should only be a moment, dear. Then all back warm in our bunks, safe as houses. But safe as houses, she repeated. I kept the blanket wrapped around me and followed the couple outside. They stopped momentarily on the staircase as someone opened a door, and a rush of coal blasted inward. Oh, no, the old woman said. Come, let's wait it out back inside. The old man said as he wrapped an arm around her and led her back the way they'd come. I had just come from the cold, so I knew what to expect. What I didn't expect were the huddles of people milling round, stomping to keep warm, blowing into their hands. They all wore the same bulky canvas and cork life belts around their chests and waists. I stepped toward them, looking to join their group, when an officer in a blue woolen coat took me by the arm and pulled me aside. He had several of the vests hanging from his fist and pulled one off to hand to me. Best put this on, miss. It's not much to look at, I know, but it'll keep you warm. The officer then motioned to the group of second-class men standing Help. nearby. Help this young woman into her lifeboat! Then the officer hurried off forward. A man stepped up with a sheepish smile and spoke with an Irish inflection. Let me help you, lass. Maybe we can tuck it in on over that blanket to help keep you warm. Then he looked over my shoulder behind me and smiled. Ah, looks like your husband's going to get you tied in. <gasps> I gasped and spun, but no one was there. 
The life vest hung on me, cumbersome and untied. The Irishman had returned to his friends, leaving me with the ghost of a husband who wasn't there. I called for him. There was no response. He was gone. And yet his phantom haunted me. Over the next hour, things grew horrifically worse. More and more people came out on the deck, and panicked conversations murmured as they allowed us up to the boat deck and loaded us into what was left of the lifeboats. I kept seeing my husband's face in the crowd, but then he'd be gone again. A man brought an empty scotch glass out from one of the lounges and set it on its side on the deck. We hadn't felt the listing yet, but the glass sure did. It rode and clattered along toward the front of the ship. And just as someone kicked it out of the way, a hissing blast of steam began to escape one of the tall funnels. What's that? A woman shouted. They're banking the furnaces, said a man. Water probably hit them, said another. Either way, we aren't getting to New York any time soon. Take well into tomorrow to get steam up again. Things got bad. Then they got worse. I moved from one side of the ship to the other. On one side, I saw men push women aside to climb into a lifeboat. Then the half-empty boat was lowered as women helplessly watched from above. The deck was leaning to the side but also dipping down at a drastic level. Moving aft was like climbing a smooth wooden hill. I kept seeing my husband and the whimpering throngs, but always as if he was calmly seeking me, waving for me, beckoning me. In the crowd there was anger, but mostly fear. I heard the sound of a distant scream, followed by a splash. Oh dear God! I quickly made my way up toward the boat that looked close to overflowing with people. The officer in the boat called out, Any more women? I need this boat filled! Where are the women? A man took my hand and pulled me forward. Here! Officer! Here! Here's one! It was him! My husband! His grip was wet and ice cold, but his eyes burned. I'm sorry. He said. You have to go. Go now, I pick you. He tugged me through the crowd, and as they parted to allow me to step up to the precarious gap between the ship and lifeboat, I saw him again. He was seated among the grim-faced passengers waiting to be lowered to safety. Everyone looked cold, weary, heartsick. He reached out, beckoning me, freezing water dripping from his shirt sleeve. I shook my head and pulled back. His ghost was luring me to my death. I knew it. I had heard the passengers and crew before all this saying the ship could never sink. And even now, some said we would be safer and warmer to wait here for help. My husband's ghost beckoned me still. No! I cried. The officer reached toward me. Give me your hand. It's all right. We'll hold it steady for you, miss. Come on. My dead husband stood up in the lifeboat and reached out to me, offering to take my hand as I was pushed toward the gap. No! I cried out. The officer, impatient to get the boat lowered, pointed to the man that brought me forward. The man who was no longer my husband, but a stranger. The man gave me a look that was a combination of sincere apology and regret, as well as desperate terror. He climbed in and took my seat. 
I cut my way back through the crowd, looking back to see if my husband would follow me. He didn't. I watched the thick ropes quiver as the boat was lowered. Then I turned and ran to the other side. It looked like one boat was left here too, but things were falling into madness by now. I looked round and saw what appeared to be hundreds upon hundreds of people screaming and clamouring toward the stern. All around me I saw terrified men and a few sombre women and children. I have a lady here. A man who took my arm called out. Let her pass. But the voice wasn't calling out loud enough to be heard over the panic and there were dozens of other women ahead of me. The voice was my husband's. He tugged my arm now in the direction of the ship's edge, away from the lifeboat that lowered without me. He looked at me and smiled. It was him. Truly. It was his touch, his eyes. He looked terrified. I felt the cold through the blanket and his jacket and the dress beneath. He tugged me toward the edge harder. Come on, my darling, try for that boat. He pointed down into the blackness at a half-full lifeboat, bobbing in the fading yellow light of the portholes. It's not far. They'll pull you in and keep you safe. It's just a short swim if you jump clear. I screamed, no! pulled hard to get away from him, but his grip was like iron. He said, I'm sorry for what I've done. I have to save you. I screamed again and was finally able to pull free, but only after scratching at his face. The man held his cheek, his eyes wide with confusion and fear. He wasn't the man I married, but a stranger. No, I shouted, then ran. I ran despite the cold, despite the splints of pain that shot up my legs from trying to run up the steep deck. A group of people down below toward the bow screamed. I turned in time to hear the whip crack of thick cables snapping as the forward funnel toppled into the ocean that had risen up to meet it. It splashed hard into the dark water, and I swear there had been shapes of people under it. I screamed. I cried. Another hand grabbed me and pulled me toward the stern of the ship, up, up, steeper. There were throngs of people here. They pushed me, pulled me. It looked like the total complement of the ship's third-class passengers. They screamed and prayed in a multitude of languages. I looked in panic to the eyes of the stranger who was trying to pull me to safety and again saw my dead husband. He looked calm despite all the screams and the terrible thunderous cracking of the ship's bow deep underwater. There was nowhere left to go. I let him pull me into his embrace. We were surrounded, crushed by a crowd trying to stay as far away from the rising water as possible. I shivered with fear, with cold, with terror and regret. I'm sorry. He whispered into my hair. I tried to make it right. Tears streamed down his face. I tried to save you. I shook my head. I didn't want to hear apologies from a phantom. My love was gone. 
I looked down toward the water and saw it surging up, an icy boiling. Then the already dim lights went out, plunging us into darkness. Screams shrieked out over the blackness that swallowed us. The ship thundered, cracked, and rolled to its side. People toppled past me, tumbling toward their deaths. I knew my time would be soon. I closed my eyes tightly, then felt his fingers on my cheek. They were warm. I looked into his dark, tearful eyes, the ones that loved me once. And he said, I always loved you, and forever will. Now you must go on without me. All around us was terror, explosions of screams, the yawning monstrous sound of the enormous ship dipping under the waves. And in that final moment, just as the icy water crawled up my body, I looked up and I swear, I saw the moon. Ice Cold Moon, written by Michael Rigg and performed by Jennifer Rozell, Alastair Mackey, with additional roles by Graham Rowett and Jason Wilson. The Samantha Winters episode was written by Brian Black and performed by Sarah Ruth Thomas as Samantha. Graham Rowett as both Bob and Alexander. Alastair Mackey as Todd. Mark Witten as Jake Stone, Allison Brandt as Jackie, and Christina Wilson as Beatrice. Musical composition by J.M. Scherf. Audio engineering and sound design is by me, Jason Wilson. All of our episode artwork, all of our merchandise artwork, and all of our web mastering is by Cassie Pertit. Social media and Patreon support is by Brooks Bigley. Thank you for once again lending us your ears. We truly hope you enjoyed this episode. We have a very strong social media presence, and one that I highly recommend would be our Discord. If you would like to get to know the crew of this podcast, as well as the authors and writers, alongside some of the best people you will ever meet, search the Grey Rooms podcast. Join us. We also would love for you to leave us a review and a rating if you could. It does help us. And I can't thank our patrons enough for this season. If you would like to consider becoming a patron, please go to patreon.com forward slash the gray rooms today. We offer special tiers with different rewards and we know that there's one just for you. We would love to have you join us. But once again, thank you so very much for your support and mostly your time. We will continue to work towards bigger and better things with each episode. And with that, we will see you in two weeks.